pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. I ask that the Lord would bless his word. Take your brown hymnal. Turn to 528. 528. Our scripture text this morning is a book of the Bible. Third John, Third John. Not a very big book, but it has some powerful stuff in it. We discovered in our last study that the Apostle John, who called himself the Elder, wrote these letters that we are presently studying. The second, John was written to a lady and her children whom John commended for walking in the truth. Now, not all of her children were believers, but some were, and John does not hesitate to praise God for those mercies. 
this mother's fidelity to exposing her children to the gospel, as with Timothy's mother before her, is the only way salvation is going to be realized in our children. There has to be an exposure to the gospel. And this lady was not a church hopper or a sermon taster. No, she stuck with the tried and true gospel as presented by John and the other apostles. It's the old, old story of Jesus' atoning work for sinners. Now she was either a widow, her husband being dead, or in far too many cases, maybe her husband had no time for spiritual things. Christ Jesus' call is for men to step up to the plate and take the lead in spiritual matters just as they do in providing for their families the material needs of life. We drew out two major applications for believers living in a hostile and God-hating world. Number one, that the world is filled with deceivers who deny Christ, his deity, his power, his authority to judge men, and his humanity in some cases. This was the Gnostic error in Second John. They hated anything material. They thought all things material were evil. So if Jesus had a material body, ooh, that can't be. No, Jesus is just spirit. That's, all they, that's what they taught. And then the second truth, we warned to hold fast to the tried and true teaching of the gospel and avoid the novel. There's always people looking for the new, the new. Well... I wish the new were as solid theologically and biblically correct, but often it's not. Today's study takes a look at 3 John, another letter written by the apostle at or about the same time, the same time period of 2 John, which means that he calls himself once again the elder. He is old. He's an old man. He's in his 90s. And once again, he writes to a friend voicing his observations over what he has heard about the ministry. So as we come to our text, let's seek for the power and presence of the Spirit. Holy Father, we thank you for these little letters written by the Apostle John. Little in the sense they only contain a few verses, but large in the sense that... uh, The truths they hold for us and the warnings they give are huge. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be discerning. Be with our people this morning. I see we have a lot of absentees. I pray that uh, whatever the problem, that that will be resolved. We will be reunited again soon as a complete body of Christ. We thank you for what you're going to do for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at the little letter called 3 John. Not meaning at all that there are three Johns, but it means this is the third little letter that he wrote, and he pens it, calling himself the elder to whoever he's writing to. In this case, the address person is to my dear friend Gaius. Verse 1. Acts 19.29 identifies a traveling companion of Paul at Ephesus named Gaius. Acts 20 verse 4 identifies a Gaius from Derbe, one of the very first cities that Paul visited on his missionary journeys. Romans 16 verse 23 names a Gaius who was a compatriot of the apostle Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14 lists a Gaius as a member of the church of Corinth whom Paul baptized. Are you getting it? (laughs) Now in our text, written more than 35 years later, we have the Apostle John writing to a Christian brother named Gaius. Now I tell you this to show that the name Gaius, similar to our use of maybe the name John or Bob, was very common in the Greco-Roman culture. And it does not indicate one and the same person. It was a common name. 
and from its repetitious usage, a favorite name. It is of Latin origin, from Rome. The word means Lord, little l-o-r-d, not not necessarily associated with any kind of royalty, but more an honored courtesy, much like the English poet who was named Lord Byron. But we're told enough about Gaius by the Apostle John to discover that he was a believer of exceptional quality. Both in verse 1, again in verse 2, and later he, John calls him dear friend. Dear friend, Gaius, my dear friend. You know, sometimes people name drop it to advance their own prestige. Well, President Trump is a dear friend. I heard Geraldo say. And it's hoped that there will be a matter of respect and honor for the name dropper as there is for the person whose name is being revealed. But the Apostle John does not do this. Instead, he explains why he considers Gaius a dear friend. He says, verse 2, I pray that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Boy, what a strange but wonderful way to say that. Hmm, I I see that your soul is getting along well. We don't talk like that, do we? But he did. John is putting it on the line that Gaius is a dear friend because he is advancing the spiritual growth of his soul. What he is saying is that Gaius is not a Christian in name only. He is not uh, flitting like a bee from one flower to another, caring little for the nectar he ingests as nourishment. No, he's like a solid rock upon which the church can depend. And what is it that makes Gaius so dependable? Verse 3. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your, your what? Your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Verse 3 and 4. It's so refreshing to hear of fellow believers who have not been sidelined from their faith by the novel but pagan culture of our age. Sticking with the truth. Wow. You know, if something is true, it is representation of the facts for time immemorial. Something our culture doesn't believe anymore, but it is. Sometimes you will hear people talk of truth as though it changes, uh, particularly in the scientific realm. There was a day when people believed that the earth was the center of the universe. A man named Ptolemy taught that the sun, the moon, the stars revolved around the earth. And by the way, his system worked. It worked in terms of being able to explain the planetary stellar movements and so on. He did a good job of that. But with the advancement in optical instruments... Copernicus proved that it was the sun, not the earth, which was the center of our universe. With all the planets and stars revolving around the sun, not the earth. Now with this new discovery, did the truth change? Think about it. It may appear to be the case because the two systems proposed had different starting points, but the theory that the earth was central to our universe was never true in the first place. It was a bogus theory. The truth was always and is still that the sun, not the earth, is the center 
of our universe. Solomon's adage is good to take to heart when it comes to truth. Here's what Solomon, the wise man, wrote. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. New discoveries, of which there are many, do not equate to new truth. The truth was always there. It was just waiting for someone to discover it and prove it and use it. This is extremely important in the moral and spiritual realm as well. John says of Gaius that he was a man walking in the truth. Verse 3, verse 4. He says it twice. And that is why John can say with confidence that Gaius' soul is getting along well. Verse 2. No one's soul ever gets along well with lies and deception and falsehood. And as with other things, the truth of salvation does not change. It's fastened on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. No matter what men devise, no matter what religions they come up with, no matter what their doctrinal views are that they invent. Peter told the audience of Acts 4, listen now, salvation is found in no one else. Well, that's, that's pretty definitive right there, right? He goes on. For there is no other name under heaven. Whoa. Given to man by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. That's pretty authoritative. And he's saying, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and there is no other truth in regard to salvation or a savior. It's Jesus Christ, period, end of discussion, no matter all of the theories of men. Did you think of the word of God being that definitive? Well, it is. Now look at the evidence of God's true grace in Gaius' life. Verse 5, dear friend, it's now used for the third time. He says, dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. So I read that and I say to myself, well, what was Gaius doing that was so faithful in John's assessment? We read down through, this was a time of itinerant missionaries traveling through Asia, Greece, and Rome, preaching the gospel to the pagan cultures. Sometimes these missionaries had trades to support themselves in their work. Paul himself was a tent maker, you remember, along with Aquila and Priscilla, and he traveled from town to town, and as he did so, he would often set up shop to support himself by fabricating tents. You can read about this in Acts 18, verse 3 and following. This is how he could say to the brethren at Thessalonica, here's what he said, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be burdened to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 through 9. Paul's tent-making skills afforded him the flexibility of applying his trade no matter where he traveled. This was not always the case for others. I mean, some of the itinerant missionaries may not have had a trade. Or a skill. Or if they did, it was maybe not the kind of trade easy to transport and set up. 
They were entirely then beholden to the generosity of God's giving people to open their homes, to feed them, to provide appropriate clothing as needed for various climate changes and so on. Gaius was commended by the Apostle John, verse 5, for being faithful in what he was doing for the brethren, even though they were, or they are, he says, strangers to you. Strangers. Would you let a stranger in your house? Hmm, I wonder. Look at verse 8. We ought to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Now, though it would apply, the Greek word here is not. It is not the word for hospitality. might shock you. It's rather the word receive, or ESV has the idea, support. Receive in the sense of welcoming them and supporting them. Okay, why do they need support? Well, unlike Paul, who had a supporting trade, they did not. And what is more, verse 7, for the sake of the name they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. Here's a question. Do we really expect the people of the world to support the churches? Missionary endeavors when the very message of the gospel carries with it a stunning indictment against lying and deceit and greed and immorality and the general disdain for spiritual things dealing with God, which is true of the pagan culture. So we really expect them, they're going to help. Now it's true, the world needs to hear this message. But human nature being what it is, few indeed will put up with those portions of the gospel that spell out the repercussions for failure to repent of one's sin and embrace wholeheartedly the need for Jesus' atoning mercy. They don't want to hear that. They're not going to support that. So if the pagans are not going to support gospel preachers, who's going Who's going to? Who's left? In verse 6, John says to Gaius, and by extension to all us believers, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Well, what is a manner worthy of God? Think about that. Send them on, our, on their way in a stingy format or Maybe just giving them the bare minimum to get by. Just to enough to mark on your ledger or on your calendar that you contributed to the project. Oh yeah, they came by and I, I threw a quarter in the plate. When the believers in Jerusalem were under persecution, their properties were impounded by the authorities. Their livelihoods were destroyed, their homesteads seized by the Jewish government of the day. It was Hurricane Harvey without the weather. Hurricane Irma without the weather as the culprit. These were other kinds of storms. The brown shirts of Nazi Germany maraded through the streets of Berlin looking for Jewish shops to burn and homesteads to pillage. And they delighted in doing that. Things were very, very dire. Who, if anyone, was going to help these persecuted Christians in Jerusalem with all of this heartache? Well, Paul wrote to the churches of Corinth, Macedonia, Asia Minor to appeal for aid. Just as we're getting appeals from Samaritan person, places like that to help with the hurricane victims, right? Paul did the same thing. Different circumstances, but here you go. What was the response? I mean, he writes this letter out. He sends it out to the churches. What was the response? Well, Corinth... The church with the big bucks 
an opulent budget, was dragging its feet. Hmm. But of the tiny <laughs> mission churches of Asia Minor, Paul wrote, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did so, not, a, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 through 5. Brethren, it isn't, it isn't the mega churches with thousands in membership which get the job done for God and the gospel. It's the little works of God, giving out of their poverty with extreme joy. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 and following. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Let that sink in. Let me read it again. He will make you rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the need of God's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. Confessions are good. Deeds are better. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 through 13. May I say this is genuine Christianity in action. This is it. And it's what the, John, what the Apostle John commended Gaius for doing when these itinerant missionaries showed up at his door. Welcome. Come on in, guys. What do you need? How can we help you? How can we get you to your next location? Well, you know, we're going into some country that's pretty cold. We could use some warmer clothes. Done. Done. Say no more. We could use some food for the trip. Done. No. Say no more. We'll pack you a wonderful lunch. Take on your way. Um, but there was another person in the church not so magnanimous. And that's your second point in your outline, the problem of Diostrophes, verse 9 and following. Who was Diostrophes? He was a self-appointed church leader who showed nothing but disdain for the Apostle John. I, I hardly believe this, but there it is in black and white. A letter came from the Apostle John to the church, but apparently it was intercepted by Diostrophes and never saw the light of day. He conscripted it or destroyed it. At any rate, it was never found. This letter has been never found by those that comprise the canon of our scriptures. And that is why John writes directly to Gaius, because the normal channels of communication to the church has been broken by this despot. What a contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes. 
Diotrephes has become a dictator. He has become a little pope. I want you to observe his conduct. Number one, the first thing he did, as noted, was to disallow a letter from the Apostle John to be read to the church, which, of course, would bear, bear the authority of an apostle of Christ and the needful exhortations for member growth and sanctification, etc. John put it succinctly, saying, verse 9, He will have nothing to do with us. Wow! What audacity for this congregate to tell an apostle of Jesus Christ, go take a hike and then slam the door in his face. Who were the apostles? Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1. Peter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. 2 Peter 1 verse 1. The word apostle in the Greek means a messenger in an official sense. An envoy sent out duly recognized by none other than Jesus Christ, Lord and head of the church. As with the Old Testament priests, we could say, no one takes this honor upon themselves, he must be called by God. Hebrews 5 verse 4. Listen to Paul again. Paul, an apostle sent, not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians 1 verse 1. Boy, the Galatians need to hear that one if you know the problems there. But this makes it clear that the apostles were not chosen by church councils or voted into office by a local church, a synod, or a denomination. He says, not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ. And God the Father. Not from, not by, men. In other words, no human means between the commissioner and the commissioned. Jesus directly and while present on earth and in the flesh sent out these delegates. Never to be duplicated again. Contrary to some denominations today that teach the apostles are still around. And what were the apostles? They were men who had all authority to speak for Christ the Lord. All authority. Think for a moment of Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, our ambassador. President Trump first offered her the position of Secretary of State, which she declined, but he didn't give up on her. Next, he offered her the ambassadorship to the United Nations, which she accepted on the condition, this is her words, not mine, that she not become, her words, a talking head talking head <laughs> yeah with no authority to input policies but admittedly when she spoke she spoke for the president no one wrote her speeches no one edited her policies she had can i say she has the complete confidence of the president that's the idea of an apostle commissioned by Christ. Paul, speaking of the church as a building, states that this way, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief 
cornerstone of the foundation. He goes on, in him the whole building is joined together, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, verse 20 and 21. Note, the apostles are named with Christ as the foundation of the church. They didn't appoint themselves to that position. No church, no synod, no denomination appointed them. In other words, there was no human authority behind their appointment. And by extension, when they died, apostleship also died because their work was done. Oh, and what a work it was. And we're reading the letters of the last living apostle in our Bible. Third John. Well, say, didn't he write another book? Well, yeah, he did. It's called The Revelation. And <laughs> wow, what a doozy that one is. But on the apostles, the church was built. That is to say, the doctrine, the practices, the knowledge of Christ and his will for the people of God are all immortalized in their writings, the scriptures. So when people say to you, well, you know, the Lord told me to, your antenna needs to go up. What they're talking about is that the Lord spoke to them directly. That's ended. The apostles have spoken, and their writings are written down, and since God doesn't change his mind ever, or his doctrine ever, this book provides for us all we need to know about the will of God for our lives. Amen. And we need that in our day. Now as we consider that, how, how utterly reprehensible is the behavior of Diotrephes, of whom the Apostle John writes, verse 9, he will have nothing to do with us. We say, well, well, what's up with this Diotrephes? Why is he acting this way? Again, look at verse 9. He loves to be first. Ah, oh, there it is. He was a power-hungry, ambitious man, full of pride. And he was not about to take a back seat to anyone. He planned to be the boss. He's not listening to... Somebody called the Apostle John, who calls himself the Elder. That's the first thing about this guy. Second thing about him, he spoke maliciously about the Apostle John. Verse 10 says, gossiping maliciously, which means he didn't have any proof of anything he was saying. He was just running off at the mouth, blasting away at Jesus' appointed authority over him, hoping to so belittle and demean the Apostle John as to censor his authority and control over the church. Wow. This guy's something, isn't he? From where had this rebellion and evil behavior come? Evil behavior. Oh, is, that, is the word evil too strong here? Look at verse 11. Dear friend, again, an appeal to Gaius, do not imitate what is evil. Hmm. I don't think the apostles threw out the charge of evil in a casual way. <laughs> evil relates to the evil one. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, writes John in 1 John 5 and verse 19. What do we know about Satan and his fall from grace? Well, Isaiah tells us, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne before the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. And Ezekiel adds this thought. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of God. But you're a man, not a God. Though you think you are as wise as God. Ezekiel 28, verse 2. Theotrephes had no reservation about asserting his authority, even daring to oppose the apostleship of John by bad-mouthing him to the church. Do you know that pride is the seminal sin? It destroyed Lucifer, morning star of heaven. It reduced him to the evil one, the devil. It reduced Adam and Eve, sinless in their creation, to rebels against God and his goodness. Pride. And now we have Diotrephes following in their footsteps, opposing God's apostle and usurping authority over the church. Thirdly, what did he do with his usurped authority? Verse 10, the latter part. He refuses to welcome the brothers. What brothers? Well, the very missionaries Gaius was receiving with hospitality or support, verse 8. And not content with that, John writes, he stops those who want to do so and he puts them out of the church. Whoa, this guy is off the rails. Diotrephes reminds me of Kim Jong-un, the 33-year-old despot who took control of North Korea by killing both his uncle and his half-brother and now rules North Korea with an iron fist, ignoring any and all willingness to be a player for peace in our world, shooting off his mouth in defiance of Western cultures and launching rockets to bolster his braggadocia intent. This is this guy in the church. Nothing but evil results from such pride. And the world, I have sad to say, is full of such people. Hitler, Mussolini, Nikita Khrushchev in his day, Mao Zedong in China, countless others have ascended to power through treachery, deception, murder, and downright abuse of their leadership roles. Not in the least willing to acknowledge Paul's clear de declaration, everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Romans 13, verse 1. Their role, however, is intended, as Paul explains, for rulers have... No terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. For he is God's servants to do you good. Romans 13, verse 3 and following. That's God's plan for the rulers he puts in office. This follows as well for the rulers of the church. But what happens when a church leader goes rogue? What happens when an elder becomes a dictator like Diotrephes? Abuse of power is not limited to secular society. Many a church has been ruled by a dictatorial pastor or pope who governs by fiat rather than by example. But example, and I think here, godly example, is to be the way church leaders govern. Look at verse 11. Dear friend, he's referring to Gaius, do not imitate <laughs> what is evil, 
But what is good? Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Verse 11. Gaius, you've got to do better than uh, Diotrephes. And you are. It's well with your soul. You're doing good in your soul. You're growing in grace and knowledge and love and care and all the things that make for a good leader. But what are you going to do now about Diotrephes? The solution? He's got to go. <laughs> He's got to go. So Gaius, the other church elder, a friend and supporter of the Apostle John, cannot sit idly by and allow Diotrephes to reject apostolic teaching and kick people out of the church at will because he wants to boss people around. That would be to prove or imitate evil and not what is good. Verse 11. Excommunication is far more serious than people realize. When this occurs, church members are not just denying membership in the local church, but they are saying, we reckon you to be an unbeliever still bound by the evil one. Look at verse 11, the latter part. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Matthew 18, verse 17, Jesus says of the unrepentant church member, if he refuses to listen even to the church, what? Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I read that and there's nothing mean-spirited about this decision. The church at Corinth applauded <laughs> their tolerance of a known adulterer in their assembly. And so Paul charged them saying, Your boasting is not good. <laughs> Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? 1 Corinthians 5 or 6. What are you doing, you, you church leaders at Corinth? You're tolerating an adulterer in the church. You know about it. What do you think is going to happen if you tolerate him? It won't be long before you'll have a whole assembly full of immoral people. Same now applies, applies to the church over whom Diotrephes has usurped authority and is ruling with evil intent and practice. If he's allowed to continue, the church will be ruined and the evil one will have destroyed another work of God? Gaius, listen, Diotrephes has got to go. You need to rally the church to excommunicate this guy. Why? He has indicated no intention of submitting to godly counsel, not even if it comes from the apostle John himself. You realize when the apostles spoke, they spoke as Christ. Their words were just as authoritative. We have them in our Bible. Point three. Fortunately, I say that cautiously, fortunately in the providence of God, there existed a replacement in the church in the person of a man named Demetrius. Verse 12. Demetrius, Gaius, listen. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. Diographies has to go, and I can just hear Gaius. Oh no! What are we going to do? I'm losing one of my. I'm losing my right hand helper. And the apostle John is saying, "No, no fretting, Gaius. Just look out there in the pews, and what are you going to see? You're going to see a guy named Demetrius. And I can tell you that he uh, is well spoken of, even by the truth." itself and also by me and you know our testimony is true God does not leave his people in the lurch don't fret about divesting Diotrephes 
of his position because there's a godly replacement available. Do you know that in every trial, God always has, always has, always has a way out, a doorway, a window. Let me read it for you. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation, no trial has seized you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. But he also will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, under the trial. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And the church goes through a lot of trials. So open your eyes and look for the way out, the godly way out. Why would God do that? Paul says Christ loved the church. He loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present herself, her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but to present her holy and blameless. That's what God is doing with his church. Ephesians 5, 25 and following. Are there bad eggs in the church? Yeah, history proves. Boy, there were some wicked popes in a time when the church was not a church. Not Diotrephes, not any other authoritative figure, not any government, no matter how evil, is going to destroy Christ's church. Jesus put it succinctly, he said, I tell you that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Not for lack of trying, I might add, but because they're not God, they're not Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Are you a member of this enduring legacy, the church, the body of Christ, which will have no end? Only blood-bought, repentant people who have renounced their sin and devoted themselves by faith to Jesus alone have this assurance. So I'm thinking that the church to whom John wrote didn't fall apart because Diotrephes was showed the door. Oh no, oh, well, oh, what are we going to do? Oh me, oh my. No, none of that. There was a part replacement there. And together the church would go on. And not only go on, but be stronger because they got rid of the bad apple, the rotten apple that was in their midst. When sin is dealt with in the church, through discipline, the church flourishes and grows because it is evident that they are people of the truth and they want the truth to prevail. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray your blessing upon the truth of this little book. Wow, what a, what a powerful little book. A little letter that John wrote. And it tells us that in the first century of the church, the first century of the church, there were serious problems. There were potentates who tried to boss people around in the things that were evil. And they got control. And, and they, were, they were throwing people out of the church. And they seemed to have a, a, a few moments of, of glory, however evil glory, but God dealt with them. And indeed, in our day, when the church seems to be having so much trouble, and we're wondering, hmm, I wonder if we're going to survive. I wonder if we're going to make it past all of the evil that is in our age. And 
the attacks on the church that are coming our way and almost daily? The answer is yes. Christ says yes. He's building his church in the gates of hell. <laughs> Nothing stronger than that in terms of evil. The gates of hell will not be able to overcome the church. Lord, may we take rest in that. And if there's one here today that doesn't know Christ, may they understand he's the winner. He's the Lord of glory. The church wins. Christ wins. We need to be in his body, on the church, in the church. I pray that you will save whom you will. Bring glory to yourself, good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, 345 in the red hymnal, 345. sing prospering in their sin will be victorious with impunity but we have the Savior that we've prospered in our sin too because all of our sins were cast on him 
and he dealt with it finally and forever. And just what we sang about, all that lasting joy is forever ours in Christ. Praise his name. Well, to my, tonight at 6 o'clock is our um, fellowship hour downstairs. Come and join us. It's fun. We eat physical food. We eat spiritual food. Tonight we're back in the Gospel of John. We're in the final chapters is what we're studying in John's Gospel. Dealing with the last will and testimony of Jesus Christ to his disciples before he went to the cross. And we'll be talking about that tonight as he lays out their idea, his idea that they should love one another. See you there. Amen. <laughs>